Let's turn to Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We'll read the chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed from the first guard to the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And when they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Lissa. Um, weird chapter because in it we have three miraculous stories, but three interesting stories. You have James, you have Peter, and you have Herod. 
And to be honest, I spent a lot of time this, this past week trying to figure, I'm trying to figure out this new stand, trying to figure out what it is that ties them all together. And in the end, um, I've come to the conclusion that what ties them all together is each character has sworn an allegiance to someone or to something. And that allegiance costs them something. Another way of putting it is that citizenship is expensive. Citizenship's expensive. The citizenship in the ancient world is a bit different than it is in this time and in this part of the world. So I thought, well, before we go back then and, and investigate what, what they are dealing with, maybe we should consider the price of citizenship for us here and now. And so I, I got to looking at what it costs to swear an allegiance to particularly a country. So if you were to submit Form N-400, which is the United States application for naturalization, it would cost you $725 to file. If you would like to, after you've gone through all the other stuff, to, and from green cards and all that, to make the final application to become a United States citizen, it's $725. So there's that cost. There's also the, the natural costs where as citizens of, of a country, we, uh, we, we have to, we, you're really sensitive to this at this time of year, pay your taxes. There's an exchange of goods, there's protection, there's the benefits of roadways, there's the benefits of the government, and, and in exchange for those benefits, we, we pay our taxes. So there's that kind of cost. There's also the cost to, to serve in your country. It used to be uh, somewhat mandatory. We had a, a draft system in the United States. We no longer do. In 28 countries in the world, there is still mandatory military service for its citizens. So there's that kind of cost. I thought, well, what, what about some other countries? France has some interesting um, things to bear on its citizens. It was illegal for women to wear pants in Paris until 2013. Um, unless, of course, you're riding a bicycle. And so the, last night I'm looking at this and, and I say, hey, Rachel, remember when we were in Paris in 2009 and you were wearing jeans all over the place? You're breaking the law left and right. And my son said, mom, do you need to go to jail? No. We weren't aware of that law, but I guess it was a law. In France, it's also legal to marry a dead person, interestingly enough. If you can prove that you had an intent to marry someone and then they pass away, you can marry them after the fact to receive all the benefits of the marriage financially and all that stuff. So that's, that's available to the citizens of France. In France, no alcohol is allowed in the workplace except Beer, wine, cider, and brandy made from pears. I don't really know. There's not a lot left on the spectrum, but that is a law on the books. Those are just funny laws. I started to look for more complicated demands that countries place on their citizens. It is illegal for North Korean citizens to speak against their government. Their hair length is also regulated. There's a fixed amount of time that men can go between haircuts, and there's a fixed length that it must be cut down to. Same thing for women. Price is a little higher to be a citizen there. Citizens of Eritrea may only adhere to a few state-sanctioned religions. 
and their media is delivered through government-selected journalists. Tightly controlled news coverage. Price is a little higher to be a citizen there. In Equatorial Guinea, those citizens are not allowed to read any literature from outside the country and are even discouraged from reading in general. Chinese citizens are at risk of state interference should they speak negatively of the government. And of course, we all know their media and internet access is heavily regulated. In Singapore, citizens are fined $1,000 for chewing gum in public. And you can be fined $150 for forgetting to flush a toilet. So, their costs vary, but the one unifying idea is that to be a citizen of somewhere, it comes at a cost. When we swear an allegiance to one kingdom over another, it comes at a cost. An allegiance to God's kingdom in particular, at least in this case, it may cost your life. That's what it costs James. James had sworn an allegiance to Christ, and this is what it says in verse 1 of our chapter today. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The Bible speaks of different kinds of laying on of hands. There's, there's anointing, there's commissioning, there's healing, and then there's violence. And It says, for those who belonged to the church, who had sworn an allegiance to Christ and had agreed to become his bride, violence ensued. And, and for James, the brother of John, he was killed with the sword. It cost him his life. Citizenship is expensive. James knew at some level that a difficult fate awaited him. The famous account of this is in Mark chapter 10. So this is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him, that being Jesus, and they said, Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. An interesting way to start a conversation with Jesus, but here we go. He didn't rebuke them. He just said, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. A, um, an allusion to what's to come without much detail. But a cup being poured out is a cup of wrath, of difficulty, of hardship. And Jesus says, the, the hardship that I'm going to endure, you will, you will endure the same thing. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. He says, in other words, the Father has this plan laid out. And then when the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. How presumptuous. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, describing the citizenship of a certain kind of kingdom there. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James knew that something complicated was going to happen down the road. His allegiance to the kingdom of God cost him his life. And in Peter's case, his allegiance to the kingdom of God cost him his freedom. Cost him his freedom. Peter had, if, if, if James has what you would call just a, 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 a full-out allegiance to Christ and it cost him his life, Peter has what you would call an impractical allegiance. He's not, he's not saying that this is going to go without any hardship. He's just saying that, nevertheless, this, this doesn't seem to make sense to this world, but I still line up with this Jesus guy. I'm on, I've sworn my allegiance to him. It's very impractical, though it's profound. And we're told in verse 3, And when he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now it's interesting that he's been arrested during the Passover. The Passover is, of course, that regular time throughout the year where the people of God remember the great deliverance of God. Out of the hands of the Egyptians, through the wilderness and into the promised land, it's, it's a time where they celebrate their freedom. And it's just at that time, and I think Luke wants us to catch the irony, it's just at that time that Peter loses his freedom. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, we ought to be careful reading into what we assume they're praying for. If you're like me, your knee-jerk reaction is, well, they're praying for God to release him. And that might be the case, but we have to at least admit that that's not what the text says. It just says that they're making earnest prayer. And before we read this story as a beautiful example of how God answers the earnest prayer of the church and releases one of God's servants from prison, just remember they likely would have made the same prayers for James, who was not released. So what, what are they praying for? Maybe his release? Maybe his faithfulness? In the face of persecution that for all they know, is likely leading to death because they just saw James die from the sword. Take care of what we read into what they're praying for. It's helpful to think about how Paul, who spent a good deal of time in prison, it's helpful to think about how he asked people to pray and what he thanked God for. In 2 Timothy 2.8, he says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, Paul says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. What is Paul's chief concern? It's not his freedom, it's not even his own safety. It's the risen Christ and the word of God. But we know that Peter gets out. 
Though allegiance to the kingdom of God has cost him his freedom, we do know that there's this miraculous incident where he gets out and he's, he's led out. It's important to even note that he's not, that the angel doesn't help him escape to safety and go hide him somewhere. The angel walks him out of the prison and just drops him off in the middle of the city full of people that would like him to be back in prison and then just leaves. And Peter goes, and what does he do? Before finding a safe place to be, he goes and he encourages the brothers. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went into another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, he did not find him. He examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. It's common practice in the ancient world for soldiers or prison guards to, should they fail their assignment to, to protect or, or, or keep the prisoner away from safety themselves, you're, you're going to receive their sentence. It's a lot of incentive to not let a prisoner go. So they've been ordered to be put to death. And then Herod, he's not too interested in staying in this particularly Jewish part of the country, heads to the coast where he can live more of his Roman lifestyle at Caesarea. Spent time there. Interesting account of two of, of Jesus' servants. One dies, the other one's imprisoned, and then he escapes, and then he, he vanishes for just a little bit. Allegiance to the kingdom of heaven is expensive, costs life and freedom. Jesus asked a lot. When he purposed to give his life as a ransom for many, as we saw in Mark 10, 45, I think he really did call us to follow him. And it's going to cost us. And then the natural question that we have to ask is, but is it worth it? Is it worth it? A bit of a silly question to ask in this room. I think most of us have counted that particular cost and said, yeah, it's worth it. But let's do a little more to convince ourselves. You see, it's not just allegiance to the kingdom of God that is costly. When we've sworn an allegiance to anything, it's going to cost us. Allegiance to the world's kingdoms, actually, may cost you freedom. Hmm. That's what it costs the people of Tyre and Sidon. You see, they have a more of a pragmatic allegiance. If Peter's allegiance is impractical, Yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, and it doesn't seem like it makes sense to the rest of the world. The people of Tyre and Sidon, their allegiance is much more pragmatic. I know what I want, and I will swear an allegiance to whatever is needed to get what I want. In verse 20, Herod had been angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And when the, the pseudo-king is angry, he can make life a little hard for you. But the people of Tyre and Sidon came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because, because they're pragmatists. Their country depended on the king's country for food. 
They needed the grains to come from the inner parts of Judea. They needed the grains to be shipped in from the Roman Empire to Caesarea. They needed help. And and it's interesting what they're willing to do for the sake of pragmatism. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Nice little speech. And the people were shouting. This damning line, the voice of a God and not of a man. Pragmatists and idolaters in the process. What are our pragmatic allegiances? What do we compromise on for the sake of getting what we want or even need in cases? I immediately think of political allegiances and alliances and those that we'll bestow our favor on for the sake of it just kind of works out in my favor. I know comes at something of a cost, whether that's ethical or moral. But I just, I I need to ally myself with this group for my own sake. Hmm. I, uh, I will support my son no matter what. Really, no matter what. Yes, because he's my son and I just love him. I will support him no matter what. Okay. I've actually, I've had a really strange bout of wrestling with the comment I made in a lesson not too long ago, but I, I, I don't even recall the, the context and what we were teaching through, but I just, I just made this reference that should my son, who right now at five, almost six years old, loves Jesus because it's all he understands, should he one day decide to reject that Jesus, I took it on the chin for saying this. He and I will forever have a different relationship as a result. It will fundamentally change if he hates my Jesus. And I heard things like, ah, you say that now, but he's your son. You'll love him no matter what. I'm not saying I won't love him. But if we're not brothers in Christ, you're telling me that's not different than if we are? There's this familial favoritism or allegiance that to those we love, even if they mock the one we follow. That seems pragmatic. That doesn't seem biblical. Um, sometimes I like to live my life on my own terms. And oftentimes Jesus has a thought about that. But in the end, I, I, I can fall into this lull where change is complicated, change is difficult, and I'd just rather not. Yes, I know Jesus puts that kind of weight on my life. I know he has that kind of claim on how I follow him in this lifetime, but it just seems more convenient to do it my way. Pragmatism, convenience, you can call it different things just start to sound more like the people of Tyre and Sidon who have erected these idols because it's helpful to us. 
Allegiance to the world's kingdoms will cost you your freedom, but it might also cost you your life. That's what it cost Herod. See, Herod did not have an impractical allegiance. He did not have a pragmatic allegiance. He had the worst one of all. He had an allegiance to himself. Immediately, verse 23 says, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. How, How do we walk through our own self-exaltation? Where is that tempting for us to have an allegiance to self? We control our own destiny. How many of you like to be in control? How many of you like to make sure that everything's just so and I have a plan and I know how it's all gonna work out in the end because I can control it? How many of you think your sin problem is unique? And you'll never say it out loud, but we walk around acting as though we're exempt from the kinds of radical repentance Jesus calls the rest of us to. Because you just don't understand my situation. If you knew all the facts, you'd know that I have it differently. If I knew all the facts, I might actually know more things that you should repent from, actually. It's interesting what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, and 25. It's not on the screens. um, But I think he means it when he says it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Guys, I just don't think he was kidding. (laughs) And I think that when it comes to whatever it is the Spirit is doing on our hearts, I think sometimes we'd like him to just hush a little bit because I like it my way and I'm not interested in carrying that cross today. And I'm not saying that the Lord is going to kill any of you with worms. But it just seems like James and Peter have a different kind of allegiance than the one that says, yeah, I'm gonna kind of do it my way. I'm gonna have an allegiance to self. Now, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Because God will achieve what he intends to do no matter which kingdom you swear your allegiance to. God will complete his plan of glory and redemption with or without you, it seems. In Acts 12, 24, it says, though James died, Though Peter is imprisoned and then is released, though the people of Tyre and Sidon have worshipped a tyrant, and though that tyrant has now been killed by the Lord himself, the word of God increased and multiplied. With or without you, the kingdom's moving. Missed all the choices that you and I have to make, the one sure thing is that God is perfectly steadfast. He is utterly reliable to achieve his ends. I mean, compared to God, we're like 
leaves being blown along with the wind. You can either try to fight the wind or go with it. I think it's probably best to go in the direction of the one with all the power. But where will we swear our allegiance? The kingdom of this world has many things to offer. I'll even concede that. It is attractive. Success is available temporarily. But it'll cost you your life and your freedom in one way or another. Now, I think the kingdom of God has much more to offer, and it's a much longer-lasting offer. But it'll cost you your life and your freedom, too. So if we don't get out of anything unscathed, which one will you pick? Both of them are dangerous. We have to ask ourselves which kingdom is worth all the risk. Some of you in this room probably haven't sworn an allegiance to Jesus yet. And I'm asking you, if you cannot get out unscathed on either side of it, which kingdom is worth all the risk? Many of you, probably most of you, have made that confession, that great Campbell Moore confession. But do we, do we live that out on a regular basis? I think that Mark 10 passage has a lot to teach us. Not just about James's fate. But look at what he, Jesus says about these kingdoms. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And he's like, look, I get it. There are some who make the trappings of this world incredibly attractive. It just doesn't look like my kingdom. Because it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I'm asking you, if your life today and now doesn't resemble that of a servant or someone who's enslaved themselves to everybody else, you might need to consider which kingdom you've actually sworn your allegiance to. There are many of us that claim Jesus but don't live like this and actually don't care to because it's hard. It's inefficient. It's not practical. I don't get everything I want in that system. That, I don't, the Bible never made such promises. It just said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to involve carrying a cross and being a servant to, to some? No, to all. And if, if that's not currently true about your life, which kingdom have you sworn your allegiance to? May this either cause you to reflect and to repent and to reaffirm our allegiance to the one true king, or if you do see yourself in that description, may it cause you to rejoice and to give thanks to the God who enables you to live that way in the first place. But like it or not, what you care about puts a burden on you. I just hope that it's the actual kingdom of God and not some man-made pseudo-kingdom. Herod's didn't last. Yours won't either. Let's follow the one kingdom that endures forever, right?
pray. Father, we are grateful for an opportunity to just learn from history and for the words of life found in this book. Lord, give us hearts that are soft. Give us an ability to hear what it is you want us to hear from your spirit today and make us more like you in the process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.